Welcome to Lions Radio Network, where the show takes you on a roaring adventure with entertaining and stimulating topics focusing on entertainment, sports, business, world news, along with many other topics. Whatever your interests are, you will find them right here on Lions Radio Network. Good morning, everyone. Welcome uh, to uh, the Lions Radio Network. I am your host, Donna Lyons, talking to you live from Washington, D.C., um, right here on our Lions Radio Network. We have lots of other great shows. But today, this show is really important. Um, and a lot of us women don't really pay attention to a lot of things. So we've got the authors from a book called Experts in Pink, Your Guide to Breast Health. And um, they've done some amazing work. And let me just tell you a little bit about everyone that's coming on today, because it's going to be quite a show. We have the authors, Cindy Papali Hammontree and Sabrina Hernandez Cano, along with um, some of the doctors that helped write this book. And they each have a part that they played in it. And Cindy is the author of Miami Breast Cancer Experts. And The Empty Cup Runneth Over and Experts in Pink. She is a breast cancer advocate and a 17-year survivor. Sabrina is an author and a registered dietitian, nutrition counselor, certified diabetes educator. Now, remember, they have uh, lengthy bios, but we won't go through them all today. Um, if you pick up the book, their bios are all in there. Um, Dr. Alejandro Badia, who is a hand and upper extremity surgeon at Badia Hand to Soldier shoulder. Gosh, I cannot talk today. I apologize. The center in Doral, Florida, and he previously serving as chief of hand surgery, Baptist Hospital of Miami. He did a big part in the book. So we're going to be speaking with him. He will be one of the first doctors we speak with. And Daniel Calva, and I'm not going to pronounce the rest of the last name. I will have the ladies do it when they come on. Um, he works in Miami, Florida and specializes in plastic and reconstructive surgery. We also have Dr. Kalfa. That's with an F. One is with a V and one is with an F. Breast oncologist at Sylvester Comprehensive Cancer Center at University of Miami. And we have Dr. Susan Kesmodel, who is a surgical oncologist at Sylvester Comprehensive Cancer Center at University of Miami. And we're going to give everybody an opportunity to speak about their part in the book and give us some good advice on uh, what we're all talking about. And I just, I want to bring the ladies on. Ladies, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. You know, I want to start with, uh, one of the things I want to point out too is that um, someone really important that has been around and talked about breast cancer and her issues and things like that is Muriel Hemingway. And she, she, um, I'm going to quote something that she wrote for you guys. It's so important to be informed as a woman, Cindy and Sabrina provide a compassionate and detailed look into the impact. And most importantly, the solutions to empowering yourself when dealing with, with breast cancer. Thank you, ladies. And that was written by Mariel Hemingway. And that's huge. When you get people that are in the spotlight like that, it really shows the depth and scope of what this book is really about. And Cindy, I mean, you have quite a background, but I I wanted to start with you and ask you some questions because you and I are friends. And um, I wanted to know, you know, you're a 17-year survivor. How did you feel when you heard those words, you have breast cancer? Uh, well, Donna, uh, it wasn't an easy uh, listen to. Uh, I was shocked and angry, um, and I was thinking, how can this happen to me, like many other uh, women diagnosed? Um, I felt helpless, alone, and frightened. 
Um, until today, I don't even know how I made it through hearing those words. Uh, and then plus going through treatment was difficult, uh, like many other survivors know. Uh, losing both breasts and having my marriage fall apart was really the difficult uh, out of everything going on. You know, I realized later after speaking with other survivors that I wasn't alone and that I was going to get through this, and I was very determined to do that. Yeah, and it's it's obvious. You're a strong woman, a strong personality, and I love that about you. And I think uh, the fact that you've kept humor in it, too, you've looked at things with a lighter side versus this, you know, droll and depressing attitude you've come out with a spark and I just and and that's what's so beautiful about you now how did you come about writing your third book experts in pink what happened that I mean this is your third book that's huge uh tell us about that well initially the first the empty cup run is over Sabrina and I collaborated and we thought about what a lot of the uh young did not know about breast cancer Um, And at the time, I worked at the University of Miami, and I was invited to speak, actually, by Dr. Gail Ironson, uh, who actually did the um, uh, forward chapter in Experts in Pink, and uh, a wonderful physician, MD, PhD. She invited me to speak in one of the health classes, and I was scared to death because I never spoke about my, my breast cancer to anyone. And she said, come on, let's do it. It's not intimidating. We're not filming. It's just a small class of 10. Uh, which later on down the road turned into classes of 100 to 200 because <laughs> she kept wow. inviting me back. I know. So after I spoke, I decided that um, a lot of the college students didn't really know too much about breast cancer. Uh, they knew that, you know, one in eight can get the disease, and some of them knew a little more because they had relatives or someone that was diagnosed, uh, so they knew only too well what, what they went through. But I I decided to put together uh, and invited Sabrina to join me a book that was easy to read. So one of the physicians I knew that was a plastic surgeon at the time uh, had young patients, and I I decided to interview his patients. And I put in the book, The Empty Cup Runneth Over, a lot of young survivors under the age of 30 sharing their diagnosis and their journey. Each journey was special, and each journey was different. Uh, I personally interviewed each one of them myself, and uh, it was truly heartwarming to hear uh, their their journey and how it had affected them. So I took their stories, compiled it, put it into the empty cup when it's over, and I had compiled that together along with just a few physicians at the time that I knew to join in, and that's how that book was born. Uh, after that, it was about maybe seven years later, that Sabrina and I were talking and we decided to write another book. And that one was called Miami Breast Cancer Expert, uh, which did very well. Uh, in that book, we had a lot of physicians write their, uh, uh, their expertise. Everybody wrote what they knew about. But it just wasn't enough. After we did the book, Sabrina and I decided about four years later, I believe, uh, to really, really put together uh, a high state-of-the-art book on from experts from music therapy to yoga to meditation um, and also the new technique of radiation and how uh, the technique of uh, doing that by Dr. Beatrice Amendola 
Uh, and then even more important, and I, I'm happy that Dr. Javier Jimenez is in the book, is cardiac effects after chemo and radiation. And a lot of people don't know that down the road, I mean, you can have some heart complications. While that sounds very scary, there is hope and there is treatment, but it's something that people should be aware of so that they do know in case it happens to them that they understand why. So experts in pink, uh, it was very challenging getting all the physicians together, but many of them wanted to help and educate as well as I did, which is a beautiful thing. Uh, so I, I met, we we're very anxious to release it October 6th at Books and Books uh, in Coral Gables uh, that evening with a panel discussion of the physicians uh, at 5 p.m. followed by the signing. So we're very, this book is special, Experts in Pink and also, another uh, chapter I might want to let everyone know is there's a chapter from Dr. Rita, um, her last name Sabrina, Rita Dartham, uh, who she wrote uh, the, the effects on the gum from chemotherapy or radiation. And the book is so full of hope, as I mentioned, that she has uh, uh, her experience with that and she explains what to do to treat it, which is even better so that people aren't just reading, oh, this could happen and that could happen, but this is what you should do. So the book is not only full of hope, but it's a book that guides you. Uh, and, of course, I want to let all the viewers know that it's very important to consult with your physician before taking the advice of any of anybody, not even from our experts, but from anyone, to make sure that it's, it's good for them. Yeah, that's very good advice, and people need to remember that. So, you know, what is your biggest accomplishment and your personal philosophy now? Oh, that's that. Is, I mean, that that's a separate show. But uh, to make a long <laughs> story short, uh, <laughs> my biggest accomplishment, believe it or not, is juggling between my job, my family, friends, and community activities. Um, I never like saying no. I hate the word no. I always did, even as a little girl. Um, you know, anybody that, you know, invites me to speak or if they need my help, I'm always usually there. Um, but my, my personal philosophy was inspired by my, by my father. And he would say to me, you know, learn something new every day. Because when you learn something new every day, then you can even give back even more. And you become knowledgeable about a lot of things. I don't, even whether it's breast cancer or colon cancer or diet, exercise, but it's always good to learn something new every day. Absolutely. Amen to that. I agree 100%. And now I want to ask Sabrina some questions um, because she's the nutritionist in all this. And um, Sabrina, you know, a lot of people talk about diet after you've had a breast cancer diagnosis. And some people say, you know, should I just eat regular? Should I become a vegetarian? What do I do? So, should someone become a vegetarian after breast cancer diagnosis? I mean, that's a big question people ask all the time because you think it's healthy. Right. Good morning to everyone out there, and thank you so much for, for listening today and, um, uh, you know, giving us this opportunity to share uh, what we have to say about breast cancer prevention. Um, that is one of the most important questions that I get asked all the time. Now that I have a breast cancer diagnosis, do I need to become a vegetarian? Do I need to have a plant-based diet? Do I need to change everything that I've been doing for so many years? And my answer always includes safety, safety first. 
because if you've never been a vegetarian, if you've never um, had a plant-based diet and you don't have the proper guidance, you could be lacking lots of nutrition. Um, it is super important uh, during any diagnosis for any disease that you include in your medical health care team a registered and licensed dietitian, one that can guide you um, so that you get the right tailored nutrition for you at the time. Many people come into a diagnosis already compromised, for example, with very low vitamin D, um, cardiovascular markers that are completely off. So it is the, the job of the registered dietitian to screen, assess the patient very well, and try to correct these um, deficiencies together with the medical team and understanding that a lot of these uh, vitamin supplements and things that people reach out immediately after a diagnosis thinking that it's going to um, help them could actually hurt them with interaction with the chemotherapy uh, medications or drugs that their physicians have um, put them on. So a very important point is safety. You need to know what is going to interact with what. This is not the time um, to be self, you know, um, recommending herbs and vitamins and all sorts of things because there, there are interactions um, that can then hurt your treatment, your medical treatment. So it is a time to um, educate yourself, uh, correct deficiencies, and eat well. Eat the macronutrients, the carbohydrates, the proteins, the fats. And when I say carbohydrates nowadays, I have to clarify the healthy carbohydrates. Um, so we're, we're talking about nutrition that's based on, you know, good grains such as quinoa and sweet potato and, yes, cutting back on the sugars. There, there is so much study today on the um, dangers that sugars have because they increase certain chemicals in our bodies that cause havoc. So definitely cutting back on the sugar um, is great for all of us, whether you have a diagnosis um, for a breast cancer, cardiovascular, diabetes, or, or any other um, uh, diagnosis that you may have. So cutting sugar and also cutting back on the saturated fats and um, trans fats, which no longer we have in products nowadays. Um, that has been taken out um, of all the food um, that we, we see today. Um, so it is important to, to keep a diet that is a rich variety in lots of antioxidants, um, ranking number one today uh, for, and, I, and, you know, as a nutritionist, um, I like to promote all of the greens, but right now broccoli is under the microscope and there's a pretty incredible evidence that it does help to um, prevent and, and help certain diseases. So it is important to eat broccoli. <laughs> we can chop it up, mix it up. <laughs> I have it in a recipe, actually. I call it broccolini alla houdini. It's a recipe in the book um, because you can eat broccoli and not even know it's there. Um, I did that for many, many years um, for, for many of my patrons at hospitals and even my own family, and everyone loves it, loves the recipe, and they, they um, eat broccoli, lots of broccoli. And the other um, fruit that I want to highlight today, which has over 26 antioxidants, is the wild blueberry. Um, if you live in hot uh, um, states, you're not going to get it available. You have to get it frozen, which is absolutely okay. But it, it is a little berry with a super power punch of antioxidants. And uh, we should be making, you know, uh, smoothies with yogurt, which has probiotic. And um, I start my day many days with either a green smoothie or a red smoothie. And my red smoothie always increases beets. Um, and all these, these foods today um, have polyphenols. Polyphenols 
um, now we know, we didn't know this years ago, are antioxidants. And that's what we need um, to prevent toxins sitting on these cells. So it, it, is, it is important to have a diet full of color, whether it be green, whether it be bright red and purple, um, and I even say black because of the blackberries. Um, so important to have lots of color in your diet and um, lots of variety of nutrition. Right. And that, those are some, I mean, some of the tips you just gave us are really important things to prevent it from coming back, correct? Yes. And avoiding obesity was probably the most important. Maintaining a healthy weight um, is, is just paramount. Um, and I say that in the book. I am actually going to quote something that I have written in the book. Avoiding obesity, which is correlated with high circulating insulin levels, is crucial in preventing breast and other cancers. Especially postmenopausal women do not produce estrogen. Their fat cells become responsible for making estrogen. Therefore, more fat cells in the body, the higher the amount of estrogen and as estradiol in their blood, which increases the risk. So there is, um, I mean, that's a mouthful of hormonal talk, but there are, um, you know, influences when we are, are overweight or obese or not carrying what I call the healthy and happy fat. Everybody needs to know what their healthy and happy fat for that, registered dietitians have the proper equipment to, to know. We separate, um, you know, how much fat mass you have, how much muscle mass you have, and we take it from there. So if you come into my office with 70, 80 pounds of fat mass, we're going to um, tackle that first. We're going to, to um, develop a plan so that you can uh, start reducing those uh, 75, 80 pounds of fat uh, and down to a healthy and happy fat. And please note that I say a healthy and happy fat, and that is perhaps different for everybody based on their age um, and their history and many factors that I take into consideration. But everyone should have a healthy and happy fat. And if they can't achieve it with uh, proper nutrition, exercise, and, um, and, you know, whatever other methods they're using and hopefully they're safe methods, uh, by all means, then, it, then there is the opportunity, and we talk about this in the book too, um, to guide this um, person through a bariatric surgery, uh, which does get um, uh, the patient to a healthy and happy weight. Um, sometimes women have been carrying uh, postmenopausal uh, fat, and I'm talking above 70, 80, 90, 100 pounds. It's very easy for me to see that on a daily basis. And, you know, I ask myself on a daily basis, especially with, with um, this book, uh, you know, could this be in this country, the reason that we have so much breast cancer. We are definitely not walking around with healthy and happy fat out there. Um, When you look at countries like Japan and you see these um, lean women and carrying very little fat and you compare the the breast cancer um, diagnosis, there's a huge correlation. Um, And this, of course, I've seen from going to some of the the most important conferences with, with some of the best researchers, uh, not only in Miami, but in, in many of the different states um, that offer these conferences. So I'm always out there learning and, and comparing and seeing. And one of the things that I, in my 25 years of practice, that I continue to ask the question and I continue to read the research is we have way too much fat on our body. We eat too much. We're a society that um, has a huge problem because food is readily available. It's convenient. Uh, we have too much of it. We make it look uh, fun, pretty, and, and, and you know, all, all sorts of ways, you know, confetti and, 
and colorful and pink and, and all kinds of cute colors. And, and, you know, we are killing our children. We are teaching them that this is okay. And that's where it starts. So I think, I think we should definitely start thinking about, you know, what it is that we are bringing home. I think whenever I go to the grocery store, I put at least one or two things back and I substitute it for fruits, for vegetables, um, because we don't need as much packaged food. And we don't need as much, you know, the cookies and cakes and candies and all those foods that we have out there. And I do have a very serious chapter um, that I write a section in, in my chapter about the foods that we should definitely avoid and keep out of our pantry and have a responsibility in teaching our children because that's where it starts. Those are, those are the future, um, you know, people that we want to prevent from having cancer in the future. So it starts with our kids. It starts with um, a nice conversation, uh, one that is not scary to kids. Uh, you definitely don't want to tell kids, you know, these foods are going to hurt you. But you definitely want to, you know, have a conversation and say these foods are to be eaten in moderation and on very, very, very limited occasions. And I don't say special occasions <laughs> because I think on special occasions um, we should, you know, show people pomegranates and blueberries and, you know, all kinds of beautiful uh, food from nature um, so, so very limited on these foods that um, we have in our, in our country and more of the hemp seeds and flax seeds and berries and probiotic foods that we know today um, can actually help us um, and, and, and start that conversation to prevent obesity and eating junk food. And water, lots of water. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do drink lots of water, but I have a hard time with the sugar. So I don't know about that one, but I will. I I do. I do know that after reading the book, because I've gotten a a pre copy of it, um, and I I it's very very good. That's all I can say, and it does make you think twice about the stuff that you're putting in your body. But I wanted to. Uh, we do have a couple of the doctors that are on board with us today, and Doctor. Um, Alejandro is uh, Badia is a hand and upper extremity surgeon, and he wrote the chapter on lymphedema and neuropathy, and I hope I pronounced that right, in your book. And I want to bring him on and get his take on everything. Hello, doctor. Welcome to the show. Dr. Badia, can you hear us? Hmm. I think we're having a little bit of uh, technical difficulties uh, and uh, hopefully we can bring them back on here again. Uh, but we also have Dr. Susan Kesmodel, and she's a surgical oncologist, um, and she's actually part of the book as well. So let's try to bring her on and see what happens. Hopefully we can bring these people on. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Do you, uh, Hi, Dr. Do you want to... Kesmodel. Hi. How are you? How are you? Good morning. Good, good. Well, Doing thank well. you for being on. We're having a little bit of issues with um, one of the doctors that was going to come on right before you. I know he's like strapped for time right now. So we're trying to, uh, we'll try to get him back on here in just a minute. But um, now you've had a big part in this. And one of the questions I have is how do you decide if a patient should have a mastectomy or a lumpectomy? What is the difference and how do you decide this? So um, I want to say, first of all, that we've made so much progress in the surgical management of breast cancer. I mean, we've made great progress in, in multiple areas, but we've made a, particularly a lot of progress in the surgical management of breast cancer. And so patients are able to have smaller surgeries, faster recovery, better cosmetic results, and fantastic long-term outcomes. 
Um, and so when a patient comes to my clinic, uh, there are multiple factors that we look at when we're deciding whether they're going to be able to have a mastectomy or a lumpectomy. A mastectomy is where we're going to need to remove the whole breast, and a lumpectomy is where we take out the tumor with a little rim of normal breast tissue. Lumpectomy is something that we generally consider for patients who have early-stage breast cancer, so smaller breast tumors, usually three centimeters or smaller, but maybe up to five centimeters. So we look at the size of the tumor. We also need to consider whether there's disease in just one site in the breast or is there disease in two sites in the breast because patients who have disease in multiple sites in the breast may not are usually not a good candidate for a lumpectomy where we try to preserve the majority of the breast. We consider the size of the tumor in relationship to the size of the patient's breast. And then um, some women have these high-risk gene mutations, so gene mutations where we know that the risk of developing a breast cancer is higher so in those women, we sometimes are more likely to consider mastectomy. And then a large part of all of this is patient considerations, patient preferences, patient age. So all of these factors are things that we uh, consider. And for me, it's really a partnership with the patient going through the options. I try and lay it out very simply for them in the clinic, what the options are, are they a candidate for one of those, for both options? And then really what their uh, personal preferences and goals for the treatment are. Okay. Now, one of the questions I've always wondered, and I know a lot of people ask this, is somebody with breast cancer, do they have to have the other breast removed? So I'm going to tell you that the short answer is generally no. And when uh, the news came out about Angelina Jolie and her bilateral mastectomy, I had all my patients calling my office asking me for a bilateral mastectomy, having both breasts removed. And what they didn't realize was that that was the reason that Angelina Jolie had both of her breasts removed is because she has a high-risk gene mutation. So for the average woman that comes in with a breast cancer, they do not need to have the other breast removed. Um, this decision about having both breasts removed is usually something that's driven by emotions regarding the diagnosis and fear that they might get another breast cancer down the line. However, we know that taking off both breasts doesn't improve the long-term outcomes from the first diagnosis of breast cancer. It does reduce the likelihood of someone getting a breast cancer on the other side, but those, uh, the risk of having a breast cancer on the other side is something that is frequently overestimated, and it also increases our surgical complications. So I usually have a long discussion with the patient about risks and benefits. And then again, in those patients that do have high-risk gene mutations, uh, such as BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutations, we frequently do talk to those patients about having both breasts removed um, because we know that their risk of developing a, a second breast cancer on the other side is very high. So for your average woman, it's not necessary to take the other breast off. For a woman that has a high-risk gene mutation, we do consider it. 
Okay. Now, after surgery, a lot of times there's arm swelling. One, what causes that and what can be done for it? So arm swelling after surgery is due to removal of lymph nodes. That's part of breast cancer surgery. So not only do we take out the uh, tumor in the breast, we also evaluate the lymph nodes to see if the tumor has spread outside of the breast. And this helps us understand what kind of additional treatment patients might need. Um, Until about 25 years ago, when a woman or a man was diagnosed with breast cancer, we would go in and we would remove quite a few lymph nodes from under the arm. And about 20% of patients would end up arm swelling. Um, And so one of the significant advances that we've made in breast cancer surgery is that we don't need to take out as many lymph nodes. And so the risk of arm swelling has been reduced. Um, Currently, we also have more accurate ways to measure arm swelling, and so we can intervene earlier with massage therapy or compression garments. And some of the things that predispose to getting uh, swelling are things like infection and higher weight. So just as Sabrina said, we really uh, counsel our patients about weight management. Weight management is very important, not just for other uh, disease processes, but for breast cancer outcomes, breast cancer recurrence, uh, swelling in the arm. And uh, so I always counsel my patients about weight management. And then finally, exercise is also important for promoting lymphatic flow. So we do encourage patients to exercise. Very good. And one last question before I let you go is what should a patient do if they have a breast lump? I usually uh, say that if a breast, so lots of young women will get breast lumps when they have their menstrual cycle. Um, But if someone gets a breast lump that doesn't resolve quickly, maybe within a month or two, um, I I tell them to go see their primary care physician or their gynecologist for a breast exam. Young women are more likely to get things like cysts or benign breast masses, non-cancerous breast masses, and older women were usually more concerned that it might be a cancer. And generally after the breast exam, uh, there'll be some sort of imaging. In a younger woman, we would get an ultrasound. In an older woman, we would consider a mammogram and an ultrasound. Um, And then the results from those imaging studies will generally help to guide our additional management, such as a biopsy or referral to a breast specialist. Um, But I always say if you develop a breast mass and it doesn't go away quickly, you should see someone, a physician or a nurse practitioner. And I always also say it's important to remember that men develop breast cancer too, so a breast mass in a male is something that should be evaluated. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for this wonderful information. I know you guys are all so busy, so I really appreciate you taking the time to come on today and being part of this book. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Um, And next we have Dr. Carmen Kalfa with an F because we have one with a V, um, who's the breast medical oncologist. And I want to welcome her to the show as well. Hi, Dr. Kalfa. Hi. Good morning, everybody. Oh, I can hear you. you. This is wonderful. Uh, Clear, clear calls today. This is great. I can um, hear everybody really well. It's really, it's really great. And all I heard so far was music to my ears. So I think I'm on for a good, uh, for a good show here. So how oh, are you? excellent. Good, good. You know, what is um, immunotherapy? 
going right in there, right? So let's uh, let's just start with the fact that breast cancer is such a common disease, and uh, when you have a patient diagnosed with breast cancer, regardless of the stage, they want to run and run away from the conventional treatments, which include chemotherapy and hormonal therapy, and they're looking for that, you know, buzzword and miraculous treatment, which is immunotherapy, to really help them get rid of the cancer. And I'll tell you in a second what immunotherapy is, but um, it's still something that doesn't replace the standard curative treatment of any patient, woman or man, given uh, a diagnosis of breast cancer. So what immunotherapy really is, it's trying to engage our own immune system in fighting that cancer. And as much as you think that should normally happen, it doesn't. Because if the normal immune process uh, of protecting us from what's foreign and what's bad will take place, the cancer will never have a chance. But because the cancer happened within our body and the, the cell was originally ours, and then it started going crazy and mutating and replicating and being just like a copy machine that just doesn't stop, it just evades the immune, the immune system. And uh, it, it's so smart and so clever that it's almost putting the immune system, just pepper spraying it and saying, don't bother, I'm not here, just do your own thing, and it just takes over. So we try to engage immunotherapies in many ways. Uh, some of them involve vaccines, and some of them are checkpoint inhibitors and cytokines. And, um, and I'll tell you briefly, basically it's trying to make that cell that is now abnormal being recognized by the immune system, and when you introduce a vaccine, you're just mimicking that cell, making the immune system recognize this newly introduced cell and say, oh, you look like that, so let me go after the newly introduced cell with the vaccine and then recognizing the cancer cell. So that's through the vaccine therapy. And then these checkpoint inhibitors that you hear on the news, Keytruda and other medications that are making really miraculous progress in the treatment of not only breast cancer but other cancers, um, are really unleashing the immune system, which is under a break. So we basically have breaks on the immune system. We have breaks because otherwise we'll just have autoimmune disease. The immune system will just be super stimulated. So unleashing or taking off that break allows the immune system to go after those cells. So it's, it's a very um, important and clever process of attacking cancer. It has really made a lot of significance in the prognosis of several cancers. Breast is not the pioneer in the immunotherapy field, but we do see some significant and amazing responses in a small percentage of the patients, but very, very, very meaningful and very exciting. Oh, excellent. Now, um, a lot of times we talk about genetic testing within, you know, people carry a certain gene. Uh, what is genetic testing exactly, and who needs it? That's, that's such a good question. So as of, like, this week, uh, there are some reviews in um, significant journals just saying that if you only test the people that meet the genetic guideline recommendation, you're going to miss half of the people that need it. So in other words, a lot more people that are getting genetic testing should be tested. And who needs that testing? Well, um, I told you that we should test a lot of people and we're not, but those that are really even meeting the guidelines criteria as of now are patients that have several family members with cancers at young age. They could be any kind of cancers. Now, when we're talking about just breast cancer and related genes, then a patient, for instance, that has a mother diagnosed with premenopausal young breast cancer, 
a patient that is diagnosed with breast cancer and she's Ashkenazi Jewish origin doesn't have to have a history. That by itself is enough for genetic testing. A person that has an ovarian cancer in her family, and keep in mind the family is equally important coming from the mother and the father's side, three generations up. So when people say, I don't have any cancer in the family, you need to be specific and make sure that is known and is not an unknown. The person knows the family history, is not adopted and all that. And then you can really put that into a pedigree and say, do you have any ovarian cancer in the family? Yes, you need genetic testing. Do you have in male prostate, uh, any gender, pancreas, ovarian cancer, needs genetic testing. Um, and then there are several others. But the Ashkenazi Jewish, it's really uh, their chance of having a BRCA mutation is 1 in 40, as opposed to the white Caucasian, where it's 1 in 500. So technically, anybody that is Ashkenazi Jewish descent with a diagnosis, regardless of age, regardless of family history, should be tested. And, uh, and then we know now that in addition to the BRCA1 and BRCA2, the latest panels that I've been using to test are 83 genes. And even on that, I'm sure since last week, there are actually more. So those new genes are associated with different cancers that now we can counsel the patient and say, well, this is increasing not only the risk of breast cancer, but also the gastric cancer. What can we do to screen for that early or to prevent it from happening? So it's a huge field. The, the number one message to the listeners today, um, and it's, I think, in the book too, is really know your family history and bring it to your provider, whoever that is, because it, it's time-consuming for people to elicit that in an office visit, and if you don't know it, you are at loss. So get the family history and go and say, can I get genetic testing? Do I need genetic testing? Because that not only helps you to decide how you're going to be followed for not only breast cancer risk, but other cancer risk, but it also tells you that if you identify a gene in yourself, there is a 50-50 chance to pass it on your children. If your child doesn't have it, the risk is diminished. It goes back to normal population for most cases. There is also one type of breast cancer, which is a triple negative breast cancer, meaning no estrogen receptor, no HER2, those like, you know, uh, the threatening triple negative that people know about. Um, if the patient is less than 60, she needs genetic testing regardless of anything else. doesn't have to be Ashkenazi, no family history is needed, that needs to be tested because it's a rare cancer and uh, it's associated with the BRCA mutation and other genes. So that's in a nutshell. It's complicated, but um, I hope everybody got at least a message. Know your family history and ask about it. Now, one, my question is, if a father, because we were talking about how men can have breast cancer too. So if, mm -hmm. if anyone in the family has breast cancer, male or female, the, the rest of the family should be tested for that? So a male breast cancer is one of those red flags. So if anybody has a male breast cancer in the family, of course the man needs to be tested because it's so rare in men. Uh, but right. also the, the family members need to be tested if that man with breast cancer wasn't able to be tested. Um, okay, so got it. Is, it's important to test the person that is affected. That's where the money is most, most importantly. But if that's not available, then you go down to whoever next generation is. Okay, got it. Now, now that's genetic testing. What is genomic testing? So genomic testing, so people really use those words interchangeably, and it's really not talking about the same thing. The genetic testing, it's a blood or saliva test, and keep in mind there's that 23andMe, and just keep in mind that needs to be confirmed. It's not 100% accurate. That's genetic testing, so the saliva or blood. And this genomic testing is really looking at the gene signature of the tumor itself. 
So it's not on the person, it's on the tumor. And those genomic testing are now really, the, you know, paving the way for different targeted therapies that we're using successfully, most of them still in clinical trials but coming their way. So we take the tumor and we test several genes, hundreds of genes on it, and then we see if we are able to identify mutations that we call them actionable. So if a patient has some pdl one amplified, I'm just giving an example, then we think she's going to respond to that kid through that drug and we can give it to her or him. So that's the genomic testing, looking at the gene signature on the tumor. Okay, that's that's so interesting to me. I just I find it fascinating. And w- one last question before we let you go. I know everybody's really busy today. Um, what are the pros and cons of getting a second opinion with all of this? I think second opinions are always good. Uh, I will always say to any patient that is diagnosed with a breast cancer, it never hurts to have a second opinion. First of all, at, at Sylvester, we have the policy of reviewing images, reviewing pathology, and then we get together in interdisciplinary conferences that we review everything, and then we come up with a comprehensive interdisciplinary plan that addresses not only does the patient need chemotherapy, does the patient need radiation, but also you know, which sequence shall you do them? And the interesting part is that we are learning so much about who can be spared from a mastectomy, who can be spared from giving a, a full chemotherapy of 18 weeks with lots of drugs, and who can be spared from a full axillary dissection. So you could go and have the treatment that would be the most inclusive and have all the treatments thrown at you, but that can be not necessarily overkilled. So having that second opinion allows you to really get all the information and explore all options, be super educated, and have time to really explore, do you want to consider a clinical trial? Is there something out there that you could benefit from? And it's just a reassuring. It's just doing your due diligence to to making sure that you get the best treatment that is the highest chance of giving you the cure or the longest survival if it's somebody living with stage 4 breast cancer. Well, Dr. Kalfa, thank you so much for calling in today. I really appreciate it. I know that if other people read this book, they're going to have a wealth of information, and I think it's so important. So thank you so much for taking the time to be with us, and you have a great rest of your day. Thank you so much, and Sabrina and Cindy and everybody that participated in this book. I'm really honored, and I hope it's going to be helpful for many, many people, and I really appreciate you having on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. That's a lot of information, ladies. I have to tell you that I find that fascinating, the whole genetics and all that stuff. And that's a whole nother show that you guys can do, which we have a big announcement coming up in just a little bit here. So I'm excited about that as well. But I also want to bring on Dr. Daniel Calva. And ladies, how do you pronounce the rest of the last name? Sakira? Okay, perfect. Thank you. He's a plastic and reconstruction surgeon. And uh, let's go ahead and bring him on here. Hi, doctor. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm so glad you could be on. We've had it. We had it. Yes. Can you hear us okay? Yes, I hear you perfectly. Thank you. Okay. Excellent. So tell us about your part in the book. So I think it's, the sequence is very appropriate. It's the way that you guys have been presenting things is amazing. It's um, 
it's all about thinking about your body and how to make your body work perfectly. And uh, once you have the terrible diagnosis of breast cancer, which unfortunately is, uh, Current statistics show that it's one out of seven women are going to have breast cancer. Then Dr. Casmigal will come in and remove it, and Dr. Kalfa will treat it medically and uh, try to identify any risk factors for other cancers because genetic testing will also pick up your risks of developing ovarian cancers or uterine cancers, colon cancers. So once you, you, you look at the body as a whole, and um, and you start treating it and understanding where the risks are, then you can start eliminating uh, uh, cancer surgically and trying to treat the cancer that is potentially spread all over your body with uh, medications, whether it's conventional chemotherapy or immunotherapy. And and as a plastic surgeon, we're we're sort of in the background. We start working at the beginning because we want to do as much as we can um, at the first chance that we have of reconstructing your breast, which is when they get removed. So immediate breast reconstruction, um, which was uh, at one point very controversial, is now sort of the standard of care. Uh, at one point, people said, no, you got to remove cancer, and then you think about reconstruction. And now what we're reading and what we're understanding from women that are coming out and saying, no, my breasts are part of me, and they, they are what they make me. And without them, I feel like I am not uh, the woman I used to be. So what we do is we start right away at trying to give them back the form and the shape and the function of their breasts when they get removed. So that's what immediate reconstruction is. Um, and is there's that, many tell ways us about of doing fat, Yeah, tell us about fat grafting because I've heard about this. I've had yeah. a, I've done a couple shows with uh, people that have had breast implants and issues. And one of the things they that's talked right. about on those shows was fat grafting. Tell us uh, tell us about that whole process. Right. So there's there's basically three ways of reconstructing it. Like you were elucidating, here's the, the implant-based reconstruction, that you get a foreign body in your, in your breast to give that shape. There's the muscle that you can move back and forth, either from your back or from your abdomen, and that comes with fat and, uh, and skin so they can reconstruct your breast. And then we thought about it and said there's got to be a better way, right? You're, you're moving muscle, you're, you're dividing anatomical tissues, and you're creating more and more problems. You're stealing from Peter to pay Paul, and Peter is a, a pretty bad guy. You know, you don't want to violate these tissues. You're going to give him more complications. You should be reconstructing women's breasts and making things better, not worse at other, at other sites. So we said to ourselves, why don't we start removing fat through liposuction? It's the same fat that we're going to be moving from, from the belly or from the back. It's the same fat that we're going to be using to reconstruct the breast. But instead of violating anatomical tissues, let's just remove it with cannulas. Let's harvest that fat and then gently through a very specific and, and well-perfected process, we'll deliver that fat through small little aliquots all over your breast. We, we basically put little droplets throughout your breast and reconstruct them that way. That way we don't have to move muscle. We don't have to use foreign bodies. We basically reconstruct your breasts with your own tissue 
And we do it through liposuction. So women love it because now they're getting liposuction. They're getting sculpted. (laughs) Their bodies are getting better tuned. Now, are there any complications? But can there be complications from fat grafting? There is a lot of uh, potential complications. Immediately, the the most dramatic complications are you can have skin necrosis, you can can lose your nipple areola, and that could happen just from the mastectomy itself. You can have infections. With fat grafting, it's very rare compared to implants. Or um, you can have um, little lipid cysts, or what we call fat necrosis, which is part of that fat that we're injecting, could die and not survive. So you get these little lumps. And obviously, that's very worrisome, right? Because here you are, a woman that presented with a little lump, and now she has another lump. So they could, you know, in, in your mind, is always, is this breast cancer? And what happens is over time, just like, like immediate reconstruction was sort of seen as, this is crazy, what are you doing? That when we started doing fat grafting, everybody started saying, this is crazy. What are you doing? And now over 15, 20 years, we have so much data. We've looked at so many patients, and I'm talking thousands of thousands, not only in the United States, Europe, everywhere, all over the world. Many, many studies have shown that this is completely safe. This is what now people are calling the third option for breast reconstruction. I like to call it the best option, but, you know, whatever, third option, best option. I think this is, this is the future. You're, you're not changing. You're not putting in, an implant. You're not moving muscle and, and violating uh, other parts of the woman's body. You're, you're actually shaping their body and using that power of fat to reconstruct their breasts. That's just absolutely amazing. And I know that a lot of people end up with complications because of breast implants. So this would be a better option for them, correct? That's right. I mean, implants cause capsular contracture. They they have rippling, which is when you see that implant that that sort of gives you these little waves on your breast. They feel cold. They feel like that's not your body. Now there's talk about, you know, potential lymphoma. You know, there's connective tissue disorders like, you know, dermatitis, uh, lupus, all of these things which have not been shown statistically to be related to an implant. But women come to our clinic at the Miami Breast Center and they come and they say, I I know that something is going on in my body because as soon as they put these implants in, my body is different. I have joint, joint pains. I am losing hair. I have skin rashes that I never had. And what we do is we remove those implants in exchange for fat. So we do liposuction, we harvest that fat, and slowly we remove their implants in exchange for their own fat. And as soon as they're implant-free, they come back to us, and I'm telling you, statistically, in our practice, they tell us they feel completely better. The joint pains is gone, the headaches are gone, the, the skin rashes are gone. Clearly, there's something going on. We just statistically can't figure out what it is. Well, I find it amazing because I, uh, like I said, I've done shows with the implants, and people talking about how just deathly ill they've become from them. So I love that that this option is out there for people. And what type of people are candidates for this procedure? So pretty much everybody's a candidate. There's there's a few patients that might not be, and those are um, patients that might have severe medical conditions that preclude them from even having surgery at all. 
if you're a smoker, a severe smoker, probably this is not your procedure. A lot of that fat will not survive. Smoking is pretty bad for, for blood flow. Um, but that's about it. If you have, if it's really, if you have a, a, a major medical problem that you really can't even do surgery, that's really the only thing. And that, I think those, those patients are, are really not candidates for just about anything. But outside from that, everybody's a candidate. If you have implants, if you've been reconstructed with implants and you don't like the way they look, if you had complications from that have been removed, this is the best procedure for you. You don't have to go through through that whole ordeal of, of of potential complications from implants because we can there's an option. There's the best option, the fat grasping option. Oh, and I love it. I think it's a, a wonderful option and, and makes people feel human again. So thank you for what you do. I know that's got to be um, rewarding within itself to be able to help someone. And I want to thank you so much for coming on today. I know you had to wait a little bit, so I appreciate you taking the time to wait and no, um, taking time out of your pleasure. day. Well, thank you so much. My Hopefully pleasure. we're going to have you back on my again. <laughs> for sure. There's one other thing that fat grafting does that the other the, the other two options don't do, which is it regenerate nerves. Fat grafting oh. has uh, potential stem cells that we've, uh, I've, you know, uh, with research we've identified that these stem cells come in the fat. Now, what, what do the stem cells do? We don't know exactly. But what we do know is they sort of reverse the radiation changes. So women that have had radiation and they have that skin fibrosis, the pigmentation on their skin to get dark, we know and, and have statistically shown that women that get fat grafting to that breast that's been radiated, those changes go away. We can reverse the radiation changes. And the other thing that we do know is when we graft patients with fat, they start to have sensation in their breasts again, which they never did when they had the implant or when they had a flap moved. They don't have sensation. But when you do graft, they start to feel everything again which is something that we're, you know, there's a lot of research going on and why is fat grafting doing all of these changes, but we definitely know that it doesn't. We just don't know how it doesn't. That's absolutely amazing. I, I, that, I had no clue, and I find it just, you know, this, um, this whole process is just incredible. So I hope people will check out your um, website if you have one and check you out in the book. I think it's fantastic and looking forward to, um, see the success in this book for all of you. Thank you so much, doctor, for coming on. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You too. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Calva. Oh, ladies, that, what a wealth of information this show has been. I mean, honestly, I'm just, I'm excited for people to read this book. And it's like you said, this one is like just loaded with information of all kinds of things. So I'm, I am thrilled for you. I can't wait to get, get a signed copy, which I will be waiting for. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I got to have a second. Well, hopefully I get to come out and see you guys. I definitely want to come out to uh, Florida and, and hang out with you ladies. Uh, you know, when I do have some time coming up. But um, I do also want to make an announcement for our listeners. And as you know, we're worldwide. We are in many, many countries now, um, from Ireland to Italy, to France, Germany, Chile, Dominican Republic, Philippines, uh, Japan, South Korea. We're in Russia now. Um, it's just insane how this 
radio network has grown. And I wanted to announce that um, Cindy and Sabrina will be coming on with their own show uh, probably in the next month. And it will most likely be called Experts in Pink. Is that what we're calling it, ladies? Or do we know yet? <laughs> Sounds great. Sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> But I'm very excited to have you guys on because I think your show is going to be a wealth of information for people, especially health-wise. I mean, that's one show that we, you know, that really gets talked about are just health issues in general. And that could cover, you know, from diet like we did today, from diet to uh, cancer and how to prevent it. What can people do to be um you know, to be caution, caution on watching for signs. And, you know, I just think that you guys are going to do a great job. So I'm really excited. I want to welcome you guys to the network and really excited to get your show off the ground in the next month or two. Um, so welcome. <laughs> Thank you, Donna. And we, we want to take a moment to have um, everyone join us Saturday, October 6th for the book signing. And there will be a panel discussion and the big day for Experts in Pink at 5 o'clock in the afternoon, Books and Books, um, in Coral Gables, 265 Aragon Avenue, Coral Gables. It's a beautiful bookstore, and uh, we're so happy and so grateful that they will be uh, launching our Experts in Pink um, so that we can continue our labor, our labor of love. And ladies, where can people find the book? There's got to be, uh, give us websites that they can find you and find the book. The book is going to be available on Amazon. So um, by searching um, Amazon, uh, Experts in Pink. And also it will be available on Kindle. Uh, and we have a little sneak. Uh, hopefully a uh, publishing company will be picking it up. We have it distributed to several. So we're just waiting on that. Well, we're congratulations, lady. I am I'm thrilled this book is phenomenal. And, um, I hope it does wonderful things for people that read it. And they, it's like I said, it's a wealth of information and advice and um, things people can do to just change their daily life. Now, you don't have to have cancer to pick up this book and read it. That's the thing about it. I don't want people to think that just because, you know, they don't have cancer or anything like that. I mean, there's information in there for maybe friends that you have that could possibly be going through something to help them and also to be preventative on just diet alone and changing the way you live and, and healthy lifestyle choices. So I wish you guys all right. the best in this and we, we will be announcing to- soon. What's that? Oh, no, I'm sorry. I, we, uh, I just wanted to add that there are other amazing chapters, including music therapy, yoga, and also mindfulness yeah. and meditation. And there's one particular chapter that is very dear to me. It's called the caregiver chapter because the caregiver sometimes is overlooked. Uh, and then we want to give a shout-out also to thank Daria D. Giovanni, who helped us put this book together. Very challenging for her. Uh, and she was just amazing. Yes, we're very grateful to Daria. Thank you, Daria. Yay. <laughs> she is awesome. I love Daria more than anything. She's one of my my greatest friends on the planet, and I just adore her. So I am so glad that she was part of this whole journey with you guys. And like I said, good luck. Keep us posted, and we will um, be. I will be talking to you guys really soon. <laughs> yes. Thank you. All right, ladies. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you. You too. Okay. Bye-bye.
I want to thank everyone for tuning in today. Um, this was an, an incredible show. And the doctors that came on, thank you so much. I know it's uh, a busy time for everyone. So I appreciate the fact that some of them did wait and hung in there until they were called upon. And so I really appreciate it. You guys pick up this book, Experts in Pink, Your Guide to Breast Health. It's really important. Have a great rest of your day.